Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 21, The Great Strike. All of the bad economic news I covered at the end of last week brings us to what was probably the most important internal disturbance within the home isles before the whirlwind of the Great Depression, the General Strike of 1926. Now, since regaining power in late 1924, the Conservatives under Stanley Baldwin had largely sought to govern with a light touch and focused mostly on the monetary policy I covered last week. Partly this was due to them not wanting to provoke the workers' unions too much, and partly due to the passive nature of Baldwin's leadership. Again, he was the type who worked at keeping the peace for all parties in the country. There were definitely proposals and schemes to try and rein in the unions, both out of conservative principle and to weaken the Labour Party, but Baldwin was never one with the stomach to provoke those kinds of social showdowns. Too bad for Baldwin that he could not control the patterns of international trade that I discussed last week. You might remember from an earlier episode that back in the labor disturbances in 1921, the coal miners had secured a pay raise, however slight it might have been. They had also managed to negotiate a kind of profit-sharing agreement that granted them an increase of pay contingent on their company actually earning a profit. This was beneficial for a time, and was especially so when the French invaded uh, the Ruhr in 1923. That region, being a very major source of coal, was cut off from Germany and most of the world market. As such, prices for coal rose, and so did the profits of the British coal companies. This was a welcome reverse, as up to that point, there had only been nerve-wracking decline in the industry. The problem for the UK was that the situation could not be expected to last forever, and sure enough, within two years, German coal output was largely back to normal. Now, companies in the UK saw their balance sheets turn from black to red, and this resulted in a slashing of the miners' compensation down to the minimum. Even this wasn't enough for the mine owners, and in the summer of 1925, they started asking the miners to accept pay cuts of 10 or even 50%, depending on the region, and an increase to their workday hours. This was wholly unacceptable to the unionized miners, and they pushed back against the terms with a fury. In turn, the unions of other industries, such as the railways and merchant marine, agreed in the event of a strike to shut down the transportation of coal in solidarity. Even if the mine owners hired scabs, there would be nothing to transport the coal with. For the government, the situation was getting out of hand, and Baldwin was at this point forced to intervene. A government investigation into the situation determined in late July that the workers were in the right, as they were protecting their basic living standards. Baldwin tried to mediate a compromise on July 28th and 29th of 1925, but the best the mine owners could offer was a low minimum wage and an expectation of a longer workday. There was also some expectation that Baldwin would offer up subsidy to help pay the workers, to which he demurred, at that time at least. The miners found the offering unacceptable and broke off negotiations. On July 30th, Baldwin lost patience and started blaming the miners for their stubbornness which uh, did not go over terribly well. On July 31st, the unions agreed to go on strike. That same day, the government backed down and ordered an investigation into how to make the coal industry sustainable going into the future. And for the period that investigation was active, the state would pay a subsidy to keep miners' wages where they were. The subsidy was not very becoming a Tory government, and many in the party were incensed at the act. But much like how only Nixon could go to China, 
Only Baldwin could hand out taxpayer money to unionized workers. This settled into an open-ended truce where all sides began making their preparations for the future. The conservative government began making plans for a shutdown of the nation's infrastructure, with groups formed outside of formal government to move vital supplies and food from region to region. Measures organized back in 1921 were revived to keep the nation at large running through the prospective strike. Members of the Communist Party were preemptively arrested and convicted to six-month to one-year sentences in order to keep them off the streets once the trouble started. The workers, on the other hand, tried to act in a non-provocative manner in the meantime, not hoping to go to war with the government when it was the owners that they were set against. This positive attitude was not rewarded as the owners deliberately built up stockpiles of coal in an expectation of a work stoppage. This situation lingered on into the next year, and on March 11, 1926, the Samuel Commission, as it was called, published its inquiry. The recommendations were not exactly revolutionary, but kind of just laid out what was obvious to everyone at the time. In the long term, the coal industry would have to be expected to consolidate and absorb smaller companies operating smaller mines into larger ones, and that there would have to be state intervention to modernize the industry. And finally, there would have to be some kind of profit sharing once the benefits of the reforms took shape. The owners nodded their heads at these recommendations and then filed them away under long-term thinking that could be forgotten about as time passed. For them, it was the workers that were expected to make the immediate and short-term sacrifices. And yes, that means pay cuts and longer hours, which, notably, were not among the recommendations of the commission. Uh, frustratingly, this put things back to square one, now nearly a year later. The owners expected immediate sacrifices from the workers, but were not willing to contemplate the long-term recommendations of the commission's report that called for them to reorganize their own industry. Miners weren't going to give concessions until the owners agreed to the long-term reforms. Baldwin, for his part, was of no help in this. He timidly offered government support for legislation of any agreement the miners and owners made, but sensing a no-one political situation stayed out of the actual negotiations. This stalemate dragged on for two months, before negotiations broke down for the last time at the start of May. On May 3rd, the general strike was called not just for the coal miners, but for much of the country's unionized industries. Now, the initial scale of the strike caught everyone by surprise. Rail, vehicle, and water transport were shut down across most of the nation, with the government keeping only a skeleton service going for essentials. The public was largely unaware that the labor negotiations had been going so poorly and had made few preparations of their own. The streets and sounds of the cities were quiet. Few buses and trains were running. The factories were shut down. There wasn't even a lot of notable violence, with the authorities probably assuming that meeting a strike of this size head-on was beyond their capabilities. The worst that broke out were some traffic blockages and overturned buses that were being operated by scabs. The government mobilized the Army and Navy to keep, help keep the most vital infrastructure operating, with warships shuttling cargo and Army trucks doing the same. There were, though, preparations made for potential violence, with a quarter million special constables recruited over the course of the strike. If the workers turned overly, overly aggressive, or worse, revolutionary, then there would be a force on hand to meet and put them down. And this was the ultimate downfall of the strike that despite its scale, it wasn't really threatening to bring about immediate or decisive change in society. The government took the passive but effective strategy of letting the strike play itself out, while beating a steady drum against the strikers in the press. 
The PR war proved to be the decisive factor as most of the British press was lined up against the general strike. The steady news of the strike's ineffectiveness and how workers were peeling off from it and going back to work, regardless of its basis in reality, sapped morale and turned the public against the strike. This initiative was spearheaded by Churchill himself, and in general he was the member of the cabinet that had the most of a hankering to go crack some skulls. It didn't come to that, though, as it turned out that the leadership of the unions was in little mood to help keep the strike going. Being attacked in the press evidently didn't sit well with the union leadership, and they were looking anxiously to make a deal. The Labour Party itself was of embarrassingly little help in the matter. MacDonald and those around him had wanted to move the party more towards the center for years now, and were in no mood to back a strike they had no hand in planning or setting off. The Trades Union Congress's General Council, the collective leadership of the Allied Unions, also did not care for how public opinion was turning, and was frightened by the scale of the strike. They did not have any intention of revolutionary change, and decided the coal miners could be compromised on. On May 12th, just nine days into the strike, they went to Baldwin and agreed to call off the strike on the condition that the terms of the Samuel Commission would be acted upon and that no workers would be penalized for having gone out on strike. Baldwin made no promises beyond further negotiations, though. Which is really bad news for the workers, considering how negotiations have gone up to this point. So, the union leadership totally caved out of the blue. This left the strikers totally dumbfounded, as this turn of events had not, been, had not been communicated to them at all. They had only been striking for nine days, and despite the bad PR, the rank and file were holding. Now, though, everybody that had walked out was now in danger with regards to their employment. When workers started reporting back to their jobs the next day on May, May 13th, they were met by employers making demands of pay cuts and restrictions on being part of a union in the future. Some were even presented with statements accepting fault to the whole situation and that they were expected to sign off on that. By the next day, the 14th, the strike was back on, union leadership be damned. The rank and file simply just didn't want to cave to those demands. However, this was a rudderless campaign, and Baldwin and the industry owners did not feel sufficiently threatened to take any special actions. Over the course of the next week, the separate unions in the various industries started making their accommodations with the owners in a piecemeal fashion. Nowhere did the workers manage to gain a concession. In some cases, they simply returned to work on the same terms, though in many, they saw retaliatory pay decreases. In others, workers were forced to leave their unions. Tens of thousands of workers singled out by owners were not taken back at all and were forced into unemployment. By the end of May, the general strike had wound down. Although the coal miners were driven enough by desperation, they kept their pickets in a tragically doomed struggle. The event has been looked back upon as a stirring example of class solidarity, a sign that the lower class could assert itself in a united mass. But the truth was that the strike, wholly due to the actions of the union leadership and their political allies, had been a disaster for organized labor. The upper and middle classes quickly moved on from the event with no new sympathy for the workers under them. The lower classes have been given a clear lesson that their fellow countrymen didn't place a huge value in them. The haves would automatically close ranks against the have-nots. Society in the UK had entered a polarized phase that it was not soon to exit. The unions themselves had also been dealt a hard blow for having caved to the owners so quickly. After World War I, union membership had hit highs that had never been seen. And remember, that was a result of deliberate state policy during the war. After the war, though, the conservatives and liberals saw little benefit in continuing that support, 
leading to a gradual shrinkage in unionized workers. This had been an opportunity to at least halt that decline, but the alliance of unions lost its nerve when they realized that the scale of the strike could push demands much farther than they had imagined. The workers would have to carry on the fight at the ballot box now, against the Baldwin government that had been so indifferent to their plights. Action through the unions alone was now discredited in the eyes of many workers. For years to come, the unions would have internal spats and investigations into just what went wrong, which mostly served to keep the grudges that had formed raw. There was now a firmly divided society in the UK, with much of the old liberal base joining conservatives and the frustrated workers and their sympathizers rallying ever closer to the Labour Party. For now, though, there was still the coal miners. The owners smelled blood and not only rejected the recommendations of the Samuel Commission from earlier in the year, but point-blank expected the miners to suffer the full brunt of pay cuts and longer hours. The situation was just like it had been for over a year now. Baldwin tried one last time to bring both sides together, and when he was, of course, rebuffed by both, he slunk off and decided to let them sort it out themselves. The coal strike would drag on into December, but the resources of the miners would be exhausted by the fall. Starting in November, the strike began to fall apart, with blocks of miners going back to work in separate areas, with the process of disintegration completed by the end of 1926. It was really, really bad for the miners. Hundreds of thousands were left unemployed, everybody had pay cuts and longer hours, and ownership had won their total victory, albeit at the cost of wrecking the whole industry for years into the future. The coal regions, already in depression, went into a full blight. The Tories did not let the entire saga go after the dust had settled either. Rather vindictively, they pushed in early 1927 a series of laws that, when enacted in July of that year, forced work strikers to not take any action to oppose its will on the government, to not intimidate scabs, and prevented workers from providing funding to the Labor Party, and also to bar civil servants from being members of a union. It was seen as unnecessarily cruel, and further divided the country against itself. It was also counterproductive, as the will to launch another general strike simply wasn't there, and it only riled up workers to further support the Labor Party. In general, the condition of the British working man was only getting worse and worse. The old industries of mass employment were still declining, the deflation only exacerbated that problem, and now the strike added still more to the unemployment count. This in turn caused the Conservatives to start looking at unemployment benefits. This fresh turn towards ghoulishness was spurned by the increasing burden on the state for those applying for, the be for those benefits. When the unemployment insurance had been created back in 1920, unemployment numbers had been around 4%, a very manageable figure. At this point, though, the rate was over 10% and didn't appear to be heading in, an opposite, in the opposite direction. The Tories were getting annoyed at the cost and resolved to start slashing benefits. This was accomplished by the tightening of the conditions for workers to actually receive payments, and was done simultaneously to the anti-striking legislation. After these assaults, the Tories largely went quiet, and British internal politics slowed down as each faction looked towards the 1929 election. By this point, the Conservatives were well on their way to looking past Baldwin for leadership, but didn't find any viable takers before the election. Labour had settled on keeping Ramsay MacDonald as, as its leader, the Liberals coalesced again around David Lloyd George. The campaign, concluding with the May 30th, 1929 election, was a boring affair that I won't really go into. There were no special hijinks, and it was basically who hated the Tories and, well, who was a Tory. 
In this case, the workers' resentment was strong enough that Labour walked away with the most seats, 287, versus the Conservatives' 260. Uh, this wasn't quite enough to secure an outright majority, though, and Labour had to go to the Liberals, who had won 59 seats, in order to form another coalition. If you recall, the last one did not go very well at all, but the Liberals being wholly uninterested in passing any reforms that smacked of socialism. MacDonald could expect little different from Lloyd George this time around, but couldn't pass up the chance of going back into power. The deal was made, with prerequisite hesitancy on both sides. So, here we are, on the eve of the Great Depression, with a divided government now having to hesitantly govern the country, which itself has become critically divided since the heady days of 1919. The past decade had not been kind to the UK. Its economy was underperforming even before the 1929 crash, and its ability to assert effective leadership abroad was undercut by those troubles, and the resulting domestic turmoil afflicting its internal politics. There was no great leader to rise up and lead the country out of the mess of conflicting interests either. Baldwin and MacDonald were not strong enough personalities to overhaul the nation, while Lloyd George and his entire political party were shadows of their former selves by decade's end. You might be thinking why Churchill didn't step into a more prominent role. After all, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, which I mentioned before was the kind of position that future prime ministers tended to hold. But Churchill had made enemies during his days as Chancellor, not the least among the common workers of the country, whom he did much to undermine and demonize. He was largely seen by now as a reactionary figure, and the other Tories did not relish serving under him at this point. This lack of thoughtful leadership was devastating for a number of reasons. Back in the years after the Great War, there had been rumblings of nationalization of old industries and continued centralized planning. While those hopes mostly came from the working class that had benefited from government control in the war years, and as a result were never going to be fully made good on, some government interference in industry might have actually been helpful. The aging equipment of the nation's industries could have been more completely overhauled had there been actual direction from the top. Instead, the biggest employers within the country were left to the mercies of a free market that was uninterested in sacrificing immediate profit to make its own future more secure. Government direction also could have helped the already unemployed find access to what new jobs were being created. There was also the issue of establishing an international peace as well. The British wanted everyone on the continent of Europe to get along, but that prevented them from too forcefully taking a side, meaning that diplomatic conflicts during the first half of the 20s dragged on for years and created new ill will between the nations on the continent. The British leadership consoled themselves over these failures by reminding themselves that they were apart in some sense, and that their interest was one of an overseas imperial power wanting to keep the markets open for trade. This attitude of relative indifference was not characteristic of a world leader, and the rest of the world saw it that way as well. The French knew they couldn't depend on them, and the Germans became disillusioned as they grasped that all the UK wanted from them was their markets. No trust was built among the Europeans, and each jockey to drive a wedge between the other so as to extract the maximum benefit for themselves, which was definitely not what the UK's populace had intended when they showed so much support for joining the League of Nations in 1919 and just the peace movement in general. Further afield, the specter of communism was the boogeyman that the British couldn't get over. Internally, it led to harsh treatment of workers' movements, and of course the demonization of the Labour Party, 
as anything that smacked of class warfare was interpreted as a threat to the whole system of British life. The upper-class-dominated leadership worked very hard not only at fighting socialism at home, but also struggled isolated abroad as well. Very conscious of the fact that its empire hinged on the exploitation of non-whites, who were peoples that would be given equal rights under any potential state that subscribed to Marxism, the UK kept a sharp eye on the movements of the Soviet Union. As we covered in the case of the so-called Zinoviev letter, attempts at establishing too close a link with the Soviets could be disastrous for any sitting political party. The distrust ran both ways, and the Soviets saw the UK as their prime threat, what with being the largest imperialist power and all. Matters got bad enough that in May 1927, relations were severed between the two countries by Baldwin after evidence of Soviet spying came to light. Those relations were only restored in 1929 when McDonald returned to power. Out of all the diplomatic failures of the 20s, this was probably the one that was the most preordained as the two nations had such opposed worldviews. A revolutionary society can scarcely be considered a viable partner for the biggest imperial nation on the planet. Britain's internal troubles also exacerbated problems within the empire. Ireland was already being considered for self-rule before the war, and the recession hitting during the war for independence absolutely helped bring the British leadership to the table with the Irish rebels. Under different circumstances, the preferred option probably would have been to fully crush the uprising and then assign self-rule to the Irish on terms much more favorable to the British. But there wasn't the will for that at the time events actually played out which was something that didn't go unnoticed elsewhere either. India drew inspiration from the Irish example, and many of its native leaders sought to emulate them. I'll be going into greater detail during my eventual episodes covering India, but the same years of recession in the early 20s also saw some of the strongest opposition to British rule that had yet been experienced there. In other areas that I'll cover in the future, places like Egypt and Iraq chafed under British influence, and even a close subject like Canada started to become more distant as the UK turned inward. These years were the peak of the British Empire in terms of areas of control and influence, but they were also years that started exposing just how overextended they were in the world. The British Isles simply didn't have the population or economic power to hold the entire thing together, and it was only for lack of a determined threat that the enterprise rumbled on with any confidence. Instead of engaging other nations as partners in their enterprises, the UK acted as though it could still go it alone, which unfortunately was now less the case than it had been even in 1914. So, I'll leave the UK here for now, right on the cusp of the Great Crash, with a shaky partnership that had already failed once in the recent past in government. When we return to the Isles, the situation will turn drastically for the worse, which as you might imagine for a country as exhausted as it had been by the past decade, will be a recipe for disaster. I had originally intended to switch over to the Greater Empire, but I've decided to stick around in Europe for a little longer and tackle the bugbear I'm sure many of you have wanted to hear about. Next week, we turn to Germany, during the stormy days of imperial collapse and nascent democracy. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.